This is a question and answer session by Joel titled The Function of Insight, recorded March 18, 2001, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. So, who has a question? I have a question. Yes. I have a question about karma and intention. Um, I was wondering what you think about um, is it the intention? behind an act, or is it the act itself um, that creates the karma, or is it it's confusing to me, because sometimes it's conflicting. Um, what do you mean by karma? What's your understanding well, my of My understanding of that is just um, consciousness energy that flows, and then it comes back, I'm not sure how, when, where in this life, that life, another experience, mm -hmm. but it's energy that just flows that you create, I guess, by your actions or your intentions. I'm not sure. <laughs> That's why I'm asking. I think uh, it's better to think of karma not quite so concretely as an energy. I mean, mm -hmm. certainly life is energy and mm -hmm. so forth, but karma per se is a conditioning. <laughs> And it's a cause and effect conditioning. So let me see if I can give you a good concrete example. If you steal something, that is coming out of a deluded perception of yourself. I need this money, let's say, if that's what you're stealing. You see what I mean? So then you steal the money. Now you have the money. Now, several things can happen. First of all, if you don't have any conscience, you spend it and you enjoy spending it. But again, this is perpetuating the delusion that is the self here. Do you see what I mean? Uh, if you have some conscience, and that's a little bit of innate wisdom coming through, then you are going to spend it, but you're going to be worried that you'll be caught. Well, again, that's perpetuating the delusion of I. Do you see what I mean? And then let's say you do get caught. And then, let's say, you feel bad, and you go before the judge and say, oh, I'm sorry, I'll never do it again. Well, that's I again. Do you see what I mean? Each link in this chain of conditioning is perpetuating the delusion of self. Because, why? It's all coming from a self-centered intention. So when we act out of a self-centered intention... The kind of karma we create, the kind of conditioning, reinforces the delusion. Now, if we act out of a selfless intention, an intention that comes from love and compassion, an intention that is to help others, do you see what I mean? It takes the attention off ourselves. So now I'm not uh, stealing the money, but I'm giving some money to someone who needs it, okay? So then this action is a letting go, a detachment. It's a, a recognition, oh, uh, I don't need this money to be happy. Do you see what I mean? Mm -hmm. That in the, in the East is called generating good karma. There's good karma and bad mm -hmm. karma. It's still karma. Mm -hmm. But if we do that and we find that, oh, I, I let go of this money. First of all, I feel good because I'm helping somebody. I discover a, a joy in that. And I discover I don't need to be attached to this money. I, I drop that. I let that go. That encourages me to do another selfless act. 
and another selfless act. And through that process, I start dropping these attachments that I have, these self-centered attachments. And that's what leads me ultimately to the realization there is no self to begin with. Do you see what I mean? So while both acts, in a certain <coughs> sense, are generating a karma, a self-centered act is generating a karma that creates stronger and stronger delusion. Selfless action, and that comes back to intention, tension of love and compassion, uh, loosens these attachments, and it will generate more experiences, but also, ultimately that's leading to the destruction of karma altogether, of all sorts of conditioning. Because if there is no self, there can be no conditioning. You see what I'm talking about? Oh, I see what you're saying. So, realization, and I'm speaking Eastern terms here, realization, it's not so much it destroys karma, it's the realization there is no karma, because there is no one in there to be karmized, so to speak. <laughs> so, uh, one example I have is, I was a vegetarian for a year, mm-hmm. and I'm not at this point anymore because um, I can't separate myself from anything and that's how I feel in my heart and it is difficult I don't have the vocabulary to explain that to my vegetarian friends because they think I'm creating bad karma <laughs> so I don't, I don't know I'm just I know the problem. <laughs> I'm not a vegetarian either. It's very difficult to explain so to just... a convinced vegetarian. But this is the point. If you're thinking about the results of your action and in an absolute sense, you're missing the point. In fact, one of the ways to disintegrate karma is to not be attached to the results of your action. And if you always act out of your deepest, most selfless, most loving and compassionate intention, even if it isn't perfect and pure, because so, you know, our intentions can be mixed, and not concerned about the, the fruits of your action, uh, you'd be like Gandhi somebody who was very active in the world, who was a vegetarian and so forth, the whole basis of his activism was this principle of not being attached to the results. And he used to say just this. He said, I, I always do in the moment what I can see is the best thing to do from my perspective. That's all any of us can do. Do you know what I mean? And I act on that. But how it works out is up to God. I can't you know, claim that. From this limited point of view, I don't control the universe, you see. All I can do is this. We can always learn from our mistakes. Oh, that didn't work, so don't do that again. Try something else, do you know what I mean? But we're never going to know how it's, gonna, uh, how it's really going to end up. That's up to God. That's the way he put it, you see. And he said even when he was um, opposing the British occupation of India, which, of course, was his big you know, major uh, thing in life, He said the reason he was a pacifist had nothing to do with generating good karma or bad karma or anything like that. He was a pacifist because he could not say in his heart with absolute certainty that the British were wrong. It was only a relative judgment. Gee, it seems to everybody, you know, this is just really wrong. And it seemed wrong to him. But he could not say that with absolute certainty. Maybe the British were right to be there. Killing, from his point of view, was an absolute act. So he could not commit an absolute act based on a relative judgment. That was his reason for being a pacifist. So you see, this is, it really comes down to a humility. 
not a sense of moral superiority, and he's going to show the, the world how to be morally superior because he's a vegetarian, he's a pacifist, and all this. It comes down to a true humility, a humility based on wisdom and insight and reality. This is the truth about our condition. We cannot know. We have to pay attention to the intention. That we can know. That we can do something about. That we can change. When we can see... Uh, selfish intention, and then we, we can see how selfish intention creates our suffering, we can drop it. And then we can have the courage to try something selfless that's giving and so forth. We see that brings us happiness, oh, we'll do that more. And that's the seed from which the spiritual path grows in the field of action. Is that helpful? Yes, thank you. Somebody had their hand up in the back. Yes, Peggy. Is okay. that Peggy? Yes. Yes, it's Peggy. Um, I had a very powerful experience, and, and I'd like to know how you might interpret it. Um, it. It's so contrary to how I see the world, but it, it was a feeling of a presence, like, like a huge cloud that includes all of creation, and it was a force of love, and that's all it was. And it, it was when I was... A sleeping and waking, okay, but I was aware of what was going on. And then there was another piece to it. There was this big ball. Um, I mean, this, I don't know, it's a metaphor. There's this big, huge ball that included everything. It was like a steel ball. and it, But it had leaks in it, and, and stuff would drip out. And the idea was that what dripped out was little drips of love, okay? And the message was, well, all that you know about, you know, all these, these little drips. No wonder you don't believe in it. But, but inside this ball, this is what creation is. But, but the thing about it was, it wasn't an idea. It was a presence. And you never talk about that. And if you did, I wouldn't have thought much of it. You know? <laughs> 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 so, that's, so what's going on here? <laughs> well, I think you know what's going on. Uh, you just told me what's going on. The, the meaning of this was that this is what, what it's all about, but you're only getting the little drips, so you don't see it. Let me ask you, this was between uh, as you were waking up or falling asleep or in the middle of the night, or when did this happen? Well, towards the morning. Towards morning. But I, I, but I knew what was going on. It wasn't one of these dreams where you're, you know. Right. But, you know, so you were so lucid. More, more real to me. Yeah, it's another thing. I never put much credence in dreams, but yeah. Right. So you were lucid. Yes. And then did you actually, was this a visual image of this ball, or is this just something you're trying away? No, no, the ball was a visual image. Uh -huh. uh, but it was the cloud that was the presence. Right. But the ball was explaining it, I guess. Right. Okay. So you felt this presence and then you sort of saw this ball in your mind's eye is that how it went or? well i don't know if it was sequential okay it's all at once okay all right yeah. yeah and then it's a steel ball with love dripping out of it yeah. right and how again did you interpret the what the meaning was okay um inside of the steel ball as inside of the cloud <coughs> was all of creation okay mm -hmm. and it was love mm -hmm. and but these messy little drips were coming out, and the message was, well, no wonder you don't know what's inside this, because all you, 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 know, you can see are these little drips. Right. So no wonder you despair or whatever. Right. So what is the steel ball? That's my question to you. Everything. The universe. 
No, the universe is locked away in the steel ball. In the in your yeah, image. Yeah, it's kind of contradictory. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You're right on. I would just take the interpretation one step yeah. further. I would say, oh, I am the actually the steel ball, and the vast universe is locked out of me, and the dripping is coming through. You mean I'm inside? Yes. Oh. I would flip it. Well, like you say, it's contradictory. How could the vast creation be inside the steel ball? Right. But from your point of view, I mean, the dreams are always showing us something that we can understand at the moment from wherever we're at. Well, I was separate. I was alienated. Yes. Well, okay. Yeah. But now, if you take that image and walk around and see if you can't sense yourself as being trapped in a steel ball in this vast ocean of love and there are leaks, and you're just getting a little bit of drips inside. You see what I mean? Oh, okay. Oh, I see. So, if you... still falls in the middle of the cloud. Yes. So, okay. yes, exactly right. Okay. Oh, this is, yeah. Rumi said, you know, religion's all about us opening windows. Yeah, letting it in. That's right. So, <laughs> you're in the steel ball, and uh, for you, religion's all about opening windows in that steel ball, and in fact, ultimately, getting rid of the steel ball altogether. That steel, that's pretty strong, isn't it? Yeah. That's a very powerful, <laughs> very, very powerful, very direct uh, teaching. Yeah. <clears throat> this is also an example of a, a, an inner guidance, true spiritual inner guidance. The inner guru, as the, they like to say in India, appearing to you and teaching you, not from the outside. Not from the outside? Not from God somewhere? Well, you see, that's, <laughs> that's a tricky thing. Yeah, okay. The point is, it wasn't something cooked up by your ego. No. That's right. So that, in that sense, it's outside of ego. It oh, may not okay. be, All right. you know, okay. right? This is why people actually, from a mystic's point of view, why the notion of God is very important and not to be dismissed just because it falls short of the, of the absolute reality. Because on a spiritual path, we start to get a guidance that does not come from the ego. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And it can come from inside, or it can come from outside. I mean, from our perspective, there really is no inside or outside, you see. But as long as we believe that, and that's our experience, it can come from either side. You can think of it as consciousness, as infinite space, and then there's a ball in the middle, a sphere. What's inside the sphere and what's outside the sphere is all space. It's all consciousness. So the wisdom of consciousness... It's just the wisdom of consciousness. But if we have imposed this kind of distinction on it and this, this duality from an inside and outside, when it pops up, or we consider inside, we say, oh, it's coming from inside. When it pops up on the outside, we say, oh, it's coming from God out there. For, from conscious point of view, it's just consciousness. You see what I mean? It's only our uh, setting up reference points that makes it appear inside or outside. And then I'll say one more thing about this. It's extremely important you take this seriously. Yeah. You know, my whole path... I told you, you know? Hmm? Yeah. Yeah. Well, my whole path began with a dream. You read my book, The Athena Dream. Almost out of the blue in terms of, you know, I wasn't particularly spiritual or anything. And I had this sense, because it was so startling, I thought, well, I can either take this seriously and pursue it, or I can just forget it and go on with my life. I wasn't very happy with my life, so I decided to pursue it. But I did feel, in a relative sense, I had a choice. And if I hadn't wanted to do that, 
You know, I could have just put it aside and gone back to sleep. So it's really important we take these things seriously. I think far more people have genuine, even powerful spirit, uh, spiritual experiences in our culture than we normally recognize. And one of the problems is it's so strange, given our secular materialist culture, that they don't take it seriously. In fact, it frightens them. They don't want to even look at it. Who can you even tell? Who can you even tell? Exactly right. Well, that's one reason we try to provide a space here. There are fellow travelers and people who don't think you're crazy, right? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Uh, The question is about the connection between insight and I'm I'm trying to think of an example and change of action. Okay, we all get insights at different times. Um, what it seems like in my experience, insight, a change of action does not necessarily follow. It might take a lot of insights. What what is happening for an insight to become you acting differently the next time? Does that does that make sense? Mm-hmm. I guess I don't see the the exact connection. Well, there is not a necessary connection. That's true similar to what we're just talking about, you know. Uh, people may have a little insight. Like, let's say you do something very generous, you know, that, uh, for you, unusually generous. You just give away some money and so forth. And then there's a reaction. The conditioned reaction comes in, oh my gosh, I shouldn't have done that. I can't afford that. Do you see what I mean? So if you actually give some money and, and there's a moment of kind of a release and feeling good, and then the fear comes... We have to be very mindful and see what's going on. Oh, that's the conditioning coming again. Okay, well, how do I feel now? Oh, I don't feel so good. I'm suffering. I feel frightened. I feel worried. I'm anxious. Do you know what I mean? So maybe I should, maybe the next time I get an opportunity to be generous, I should try it again, see what happens. Treat it as an experiment. Then I try it again. Okay, now I feel good again. Well, after a while, your own experience is what convinces you that selfishness creates suffering and selflessness creates, uh, doesn't create, it gives access to joy. So we have to act on our insights just like we have to act on, you know, visions. I would call it like you had a vision, a genuine spiritual vision. But even the little insights we have to continue to act on. Um, I'm, I'm thinking of something that's, that's so ingrained as a habit. It's like changing the, the habit energy that we've had all our life. And, we, you know, we get insights and insights, but somehow it seems like it's not enough we still do this act again and again that we feel maybe is unwholesome or it's not beneficial. Look, there's something, there's always a reason behind our, each link in our conditioning. If you dig deep enough, it's usually fear, but uh, whatever it may be. So you want to try to find out why you are doing what you continually do. So... Uh, I don't know. Let's say, uh, well, give me an example Let's from say your I life. Too you, much. What? I eat too much. You eat too much. Yeah. Okay, good. And you have an insight that that's not good for you. Be a deeper reason than yes. eating too much. That's exa- okay. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. So now, that's what you have to find out. Now, it's not finding out in the sense of coming up with a psychological theory about why you eat too much. That could help. That could help direct your attention. <laughs> but really, is you want to become mindful in those situations when you feel like you're eating too much. 
So what is it that I am experientially getting out of this in the moment that I'm doing it? Do you see what I mean? And then what would happen if I stopped? Right in that moment. I'm talking about the moment where you're reaching for the cookie. The best thing to do would be to, first of all, pick up the cookie and eat the cookie with tremendous mindfulness. So what is it? I mean, is it pleasure, the, the actual pleasure of the taste? Is it feeling like you're, you're rewarding yourself for something? Or, you know what I mean? <clears throat> Not what you think is going on. You have to see what's going on, experience what's going on. And you see, this is why it's important to have the insight and not just make it a discipline injunction. Oh, I shouldn't have the cookie bad because you're not dealing with the underlying problem. So let's say it's pleasure just for the sake of argument, right? It's it's something you need that physical pleasure at that moment. So then the next time you reach for the cookie or the next cookie, if you're going to reach for another one, now you don't reach for it. And you see desire for the physical pleasure arises. And there's this conditioned impulse to grab it. But now here's where you check your conditioning. Just check it. And a good way to do this, I would say in the beginning, say, I'm not going to eat another cookie for five minutes. Now you sit for five minutes with this desire. What's so terrible about it? Is the sky going to fall down if you don't get your cookie? You know what I mean? You feel it. You, often you'll feel the desire just pass away. If you go do something else for five minutes, often you'll forget you wanted the other cookie. That's how really important it was. So this is how we take this practice in a nuts and bolts manner and apply it. In fact, I'll tell you just an example from my life. When I was working in Hollywood, I used to drink a lot, especially at the end of the day, you know. And when I started meditating in the evening, and this wasn't planned, but I'd come home and before I had my bourbon on the rocks, I would want to meditate because I, you know, was smart enough to know that it'd be better to meditate without the bourbon <laughs> on the rocks. So I'd meditate for 20 minutes. And then I, when I finished meditating, I wouldn't want the bourbon on the rocks. Oh, well, dummy, you were drinking the bourbon on the rocks to relieve stress. Well, meditation will relieve stress at the end of the day. It was a side effect of meditation. You know, it wasn't the main purpose that I was meditating to relieve stress. But... Then that made me look deeper in my whole life. Well, why are you so stressed out? Well, because you're very attached to your job and what's going to happen on the job. You know what I mean? Because you want to be successful and all that. All this ambition and drive for success is stressing you out. It's not bringing you happiness. It's bringing you discomfort, pain, suffering. Oh, well, let's let go of that. What would happen if I started acting during the day not caring how it affected me? I just started doing my job as you know, as best I could, without attachment to the fruit of the action. Oh, suddenly, much less stress. So, again, this is how one thing can lead to another, and, you know, our life changes not because we decide, on a spiritual path, because we decide, all right, I'm going to exercise my will, I'm going to change my life. You can try to do that, and you might even succeed, but whatever you're changing... Part of it's going to go in psychological terms into the unconscious and it'll come up and bite you in the ass in some other place, you know. But if you see why you're doing these things, directly see, experientially, and you see it's causing you suffering, it's not a big deal to change. I've often said, the role of a spiritual teacher is someone comes to them holding a hot coal in their hand. 
and they're complaining. They say, I'm in such terrible pain. But they're not connecting the fact that their pain is coming from holding the hot coal. And a teacher cannot make you drop the hot coal or anything else. The only thing a teacher can do is keep pointing back and saying, well, why don't you examine your pain? Trace it back. Oh, oh, I'm holding a hot coal. Oof. Drop it. No, no, it doesn't take a lot of willpower. You see what I mean? And you can be your own teacher that way. Was that helpful? Oh, yeah. Okay. What about one of those timid people? <laughs> Now's your chance. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, um, well, I, I probably need to, to say just a little about my background. Um, first of all, you know, I grew up as a child in a Christian family. Um, the plan was for me to be a minister. I, I ended up going to a seminary for a while and uh, kind of flunked out of that. And, um, and then I became very resentful about the whole idea of Christianity and spirituality and, uh, and got pretty heavily into drugs um, and uh, stayed there for a while. And then that stopped working. Uh, and uh, so then I got into recovery, and at least that um, took away the desire for the drugs, but um, I've been sober for a little over seven years now, and, um, and I'm finding that over this last year, uh, I, I've fallen into a lot of depression and fear. And it's put this pretty big hole inside of me, which wasn't part of the plan. Um, and, and I think the drugs used to fill up that hole. Um, so what I'm getting to, and, and I kind of thought about this during the meditation, was um, that there are two things going on at the same time, which are maybe the same thing. And, and this is what I'd like to, you to talk about a little bit, that that maybe this hole, which comes from the depression and the fear, is um, a, a place to start putting God in. Uh, you, you know, that maybe I need that hole first before I can uh, bring the, the peace of God inside. And, and uh, another example of that is... Um, that while, while we were thinking about the meditation, or doing the meditation, I was sort of asking the question, well, is, is uh, yeah, I mean, we're after God consciousness when we're doing that meditation, but, but maybe at the same time we're getting self-consciousness. Um, you, you know, and, and so I, I, I wondered kind of is, is ultimate ego and ultimate God consciousness the same thing? And the, and the, the third example that I thought of, and uh, I actually want to have dibs on that book uh, of the woman who was in the Holocaust. 
<laughs> you got it. There, there are other copies. If anybody else wants one, ask Jennifer. But you got this one. Got your name. What's your name again? My name is David. David? Yeah. Okay. Great, thanks. That's uh, a tough one. She chose, uh, as you were saying, that she chose the, this ultimate fear, this um, ultimate horror, as a a means for a spiritual path. And, and that, I mean, I don't like that idea. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, yeah, I'm curious if you have any thoughts about that. Let me start just by saying, uh, in the meditation, these thoughts that were going on while we're doing this for God consciousness, but maybe this is ego consciousness. All that is just when I'm talking about the story of I and thought. And I'm glad you brought it up because this happens a lot to people. When we say whatever thoughts arise, you notice you're not following the breath. And that's why you have some objects, so it's clear, do you see what I mean? Then you say, okay, this is just thought, this is distraction, bring the attention back to the breath. The thing that deceives us the most are spiritual thoughts because we start having spiritual thoughts and sometimes we start having lots of intellectual sorts of insights about our life about god about the nature of the universe do you know what i mean it's all distraction it's all just another way the ego mind has to keep you distracted does not matter whether they're spiritual thoughts or whether they're uh, you know, uh, uh, satanic thoughts. I mean, it's irrelevant. That's the whole point, is to get out of that thinking mind, at least for a little space of time, to see what's there. One of the reasons that we uh, keep spinning this thinking mind is because we're afraid. Because we're afraid if the spinning mind stops, I won't be there. And that appears to us like a big hole which we're going to kind of get sucked into and dissolved. And whether you're spiritual or not, or doing practices or not, that's going on in our lives. We are literally creating ourselves through our imagination, through all this story, and that starts to happen. And then we feel we got to keep it going because, my gosh, if I stop, there's nothing but a big hole there. That's what we think of as death. I mean, unless you fill that hole with visions of heaven and hell or, you know, whatever. But, you know, even so, at the most existential level, we're terrified. There's going to be a big hole with nothing in it. A nothing that's like an empty void. And not, not the kind of nothingness that Christian mystics or emptiness the Buddhists talk about. I mean a vacuum, you know. So, like, we're running across this void, and we've got to keep running, because if we stop, we're going to fall through. And some people, uh, yeah, some people take drugs, uh, alcohol, some people become sexual addicts, some people need fame, some people pile up money, whatever it is you're doing to distract you, do you see what I mean? As long as I don't fall in that hole, I'll be okay. Of course... The reality is, if that is true, that this is what life is like, you're going to fall in the hole anyway at the end of your life. So it's all futile. All this activity is just futile because you can't outrun death. Now, what mystics say is actually what looks like a hole, what looks like nothing, is the divine. Is the divine. 
Saint Bonaventure said it beautifully. Said that after we've detached ourselves from all creatures, as he puts it in Christian terms, and then we're faced with the darkness, and we our minds at first don't recognize that that very darkness is divine illumination. So we have to learn as. Um, the author of The Cloud of Unknowing, another great Christian mystic, says, to learn to be at home in this darkness instead of continuing to run away from it. you know what I mean? And then it reveals itself. It reveals itself to be uh, nothing because God is not a thing. God is not a thing. He's not a big daddy in the sky. I mean, these are metaphorical ways of talking about it. Jesus talked about the father, and he always used it metaphorically, he said, you know, just as a father doesn't give their son a stone to eat, gives them food, this is how God is. But it didn't mean ever that God was a big daddy in the sky. This is our latching on to some image and make it part of the story. God is no thing. Hindus say, not this, not that. Wherever you look around, no, God's not that, not this, not that, not this, not anything. So that makes God nothing. But that's the last thing we want to discover. And what the mystics say is not only is God nothing, you're nothing. And that's why God's nothingness and your nothingness are the same. There's no difference. Your true nature, who you really are, not the ego is God, that you're going to you know, command the clouds and the thunder and all that, but your true nature... All the things you're afraid of, the, the fundamental things of death and everything, ain't going to happen because you aren't all these things that die. Your true nature is that eternal consciousness, not a consciousness even that goes on in time, a consciousness in which time happens, that it transcends time. But we need to start looking not where we're used to looking, but where we're not used to looking. We need to start knowing, not in the ways we're used to knowing, but through unknowing. Letting go of our relative temporal, intellectual, conceptual knowledge. So you've got it right on. I just reversed what you said. You said... This emptiness comes out of your depression and uh, your fear. I would say no. The fear and the depression come out of a touching into the emptiness. That emptiness is always there. That's the fear and the depression are masking. At least if I'm afraid, I know I'm something. At least if I'm depressed, I know I'm something. Do you know what I mean? What happens if you let go of depression and fear? You know, again, this is a practice, and there are, there are practices you can do, just like we were talking, very nuts and bolts ways of going about this. And one of the first things we have to learn, and, it's a, and again, from a mystic's point of view, this is the meaning of original sin. Original sin wasn't that Adam and Eve did the dirty deed. Original sin is a way of explaining that we come into the world conditioned. And, and in fact, this takes the onus off us a little bit. You know what I mean? You're still responsible in a relative sense. But the point is, this conditioning is, doesn't mean you're a bad person. This conditioning goes way back. 
to the beginnings of time. In the East, it's karma. It goes way back through previous lives. It's the same <coughs> meaning. It's a different kind of doctrine, but the same meaning. So the, the very first thing we do is, instead of saying, uh, oh, I'm such a miserable sinner, I, you know, this and that, and I should be able to overcome this and all that, you look at your own, quote, sin, you look at your own selfishness, you look at uh, what's going on, the story of I, you start to look at it with some detachment and with some compassion because it's suffering. Just the way you look at any suffering being, you start to see yourself as a suffering being. Do you know what I mean? That love and compassion that Jesus has for sinners, which is boundless, that's the whole point of the story, you have to have that too. He's showing you. I am the way and the truth and the light. Well, Christians always take that to mean that, well, that means our boy was the only one. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> no, he's just saying, I'm showing you. And he's saying, I, I am the way and the truth and the light. And you, you can say that too. Everybody can say that. And that I is one with the Father. And in that very passage, either just a little bit later or just before in John, he says that. Because he says, I pray to the Father that you're one with me and I'm one with the Father. You know that whole thing? So the I he's talking about here isn't the individual form, Jesus, human ego, standing in front of these people. It's, it's very clear. Jesus' life is, the, is his teaching. He shows you. To be free, he's not attached. To be loving, to be compassionate. And the verbal teachings to give are so simple. They are practices. This is what I think, well, let me speak personally. I grew up, uh, not my parents weren't Christian, but I went to a Christian uh, grade school, and I, for a while, was very uh, religious and so forth. And then I, you know, I prayed to God to save my dog, and the dog died, and so <laughs> that goodbye, God. <laughs> uh, but... Uh, <clears throat> uh, now, what was I about to say? <laughs> <laughs> Seeing your moment here. What was I about the to say? The simplicity of the teachings of Jesus. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> On my path, I was reading Buddhism and Hindus and all this stuff, and I went back to look at the Gospels again, and I said, oh my gosh, these are things you're supposed to try to practice. These aren't just, you know divine words coming down from God and we're supposed to put them on a pedestal and say, oh yes, Jesus is wonderful because he lived that way. You know what I mean? When he says, pray for your enemies and people who abuse you and spite you and so forth, well, why don't you try it sometime? That's a wonderful practice. That'll interrupt that conditioning. So there you are at work, right? So you have an enemy at work. They insult you. They tell you what a terrible person you are. And then your reaction is, uh, put up a steel ball, right, you know, close the windows, and then maybe figure out some way to get even with them or whatever. <laughs> Nobody thinks to pray in that moment for that person. To recognize that they're in pain and suffering. You see, take the attention off me, open a little window on that steel ball. Oh, it changes the conditioning. 
Somebody once said, you know, we don't know whether Christianity is a good religion or not because nobody ever practiced it. (laughs) And then, you know, we make such a big deal out of Jesus that we think, oh, I could never be like him. I mean, this is what Christianity has done. Just, Just what I meant before about putting the teacher on the pedestal. But if we don't worry about that, if we start with something simple, just take any little teaching that strikes you from Jesus, from Buddha, from the Hindu tradition, doesn't matter. Do you know what I mean? Say, oh, I could try to practice that. What would happen if I just tried to practice that? I don't try to become like Jesus or anything. But if you just start to practice that, that'll lead you to that, that'll lead you to that, that'll lead you to that. And without you ever knowing it or willing it even, it starts to fall away. And then there's the attraction. Your call. Do you feel the call? That's what grace is. Do you know what I mean? Now, I, more and more, you can turn it over to that, that divine consciousness that is always trying to wake us up because we are it. I'm sorry, I maybe gave you too long an answer to your question. No, but that's great. <laughs> it really is very helpful. And it's just one thing that occurred to me that we didn't put Jesus up on the pedestal. We put him up on Bob Cars, could you flip that heater off? I think it's. I had it off. (laughs) (laughs) Even I'm getting warm, and I'm warm. He's he's cooking there. (laughs) Or I had left his t shirt. (laughs) <laughs> All right. One more? Yes. Well, um, I've been doing that Tong Len practice when strong emotions come up, and you were just talking about it again that imagining other people's pain when we feel it. And I find that when I get angry, I just can't seem to do it. Um, do you have any advice you give on? On that range, I just, you know, get carried away by it. Okay. What can't you seem to do? The part about imagining how they... I can't seem to drop it. And I keep on wanting to own the anger. You know, it's just like, I'm so angry, you know, rather than, but other people feel this way too. And and dropping it, there's this this sense of really wanting to possess it and be that. Okay. I would, uh, at this stage, forget about all this business of trying to see that other people feel it too and all that. That's, that can be an aid, you know what I mean? <laughs> but uh, that's, that is, again, it's using a thought as a reminder you know, to point you to something, but if that's interfering, don't worry about that for now. But you said something else. You said, I, I can't seem to drop it. Right. The purpose of this practice is not to drop these emotions. And people are always secretly doing it, trying to get rid of these emotions. For those of you who don't know, Tonglin is a Tibetan Buddhist practice, a way of working with what we call negative emotions, afflicted emotions. And the principle of it, just in the most briefest, roughest terms, is instead of either pushing them away or grasping them, and that's what you're doing, I want to own this, I am, you know, angry. Instead of that, we create a space in which we allow the emotion to be. That's the simplicity of the practice. Everything else is extraneous. We allow that emotion to be in that space without acting it out. That's the moral part. You check that. So you're angry at somebody. It doesn't mean you... Allowing the emotion to be does not mean going out and, you know, punching the nose. 
But it means giving permission to just, like, can I give myself permission to be angry at somebody or just to be angry? <laughs> well, if you allow the emotion to be, and you have that space, you will see that it is thoughts about the person that are keeping the anger going, right? I mean, and then you apply just the very techniques you learn in the simple breath meditation right there. So now I'm distracted by all these thoughts, but now you, you want to take as your meditation object the anger itself. So you take the attention off the thought and you put it on the feeling of anger in your body. You see what I mean? Yeah, I guess I just have had this real strong sense that it's not okay to feel that. So it is good to hear you say that, yeah, it's fine. Well, whether it's good to feel it or not, it's okay to feel it or not, is irrelevant. You're feeling it. That's the reality. <laughs> That's the truth, right? Yeah. See, we start with truth, with reality. What is going on here, right? Yeah. So, in this space... And if you want to put it that way, give yourself permission to feel it. I mean, you, you, you are feeling it. That's just, you know, I don't know. If that helps, do it. But you don't need permission. It's there. Well, rather than try and push it away. That's right. Don't push yeah. it. Don't, yeah. don't push it. And the grasping part is the thought. The thought takes place in this case in grasping. And what you want to do is say, my meditation is to take anger as the object of my meditation. So if you start finding your attention is lost in thought about how this person did you dirty and this and then, you know, they were your friend, they stabbed you in the back and you'll never, you know. Then you, you see you're not focusing on the anger. That thought is keeping the anger going, but that's not where your attention is. So you say, oh, lost in thought, let's bring the attention back. You feel the anger in the body. This is creating the space for this experiential insight to happen. I'm, I'm just going to give you an example. One kind of thing is you see, well, uh, What's wrong with this energy in the body? I mean, why do I feel I have to get rid of it? It's energy in the body. Another thing is, um, you might notice, as soon as you take the attention off the thought and really put on the anger, the thought dissolves, the anger dissolves. Mm -hmm. Interesting. You're not doing it in order to dissolve the anger, do you see what I mean? But you get an insight from there. What you get the insight is that our stories take natural emotions and distort them. Anger can be, um, can be a very powerful, positive energy. Or let me put it this way, the, the energy is neutral. It's what we do with them that makes them positive or negative. If we continue to feed them into our delusion, our story of self, they are negative. And particularly some emotions like anger, if we do that and then we feed that out at other people, is doubly negative. You know what I mean? So, like, it's a good practice to just withdraw if I'm feeling really angry to just take time by myself rather than being around. Oh, I think definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Mm -hmm. In the beginning, all these practices are relative to a situation. So it's not a lifelong strategy when you're angry to withdraw. Because there may be times when actually you will see that anger is actually something you can use in the moment in that situation. In fact, most of you have heard the story before. Some of you haven't, but I'm going to tell the story right now again uh, because it's very pertinent, and then those of you to whom this kind of practice is new might benefit from it. About 10 years ago, uh, we were living in an apartment over in Nixon Street on the second floor. And I am a smoker, but I don't smoke in the house. I always go outside. Well, in the middle of winter in this apartment, I wouldn't go outside, but I'd go into the living room and I'd open the window 
you know, smoke out the window so the house wouldn't be filled up with smoke and Jennifer wouldn't get uh, secondhand smoke and all that. So one night, I get up in the middle of the night, must have been, I don't know, three o'clock in the morning. I go to the window and I'm, I open the window and I'm there smoking and I see this kid, 16 years old, 15, 16, walking down the street, kind of looking around like that, you know, looking at the cars. I'm looking at him. He gets in front of my car, in front of my house, parked on the street, right? He's looking around. He's on the driver's side. And he takes his hand like that. He's aiming at the window. Now, I'm going to try to describe in words, I have to use words, what went on in my mind. It didn't happen in words. It was like lightning. But I saw this kid. I said, here's a 16-year-old kid starting on a life of crime. He's probably just out adventuring playfully now. You know what I mean? But this is starting down the path. So how could I communicate with this kid that this is, you know, a bad idea, right? Uh, so if I call down and say, hey, son, could we have a little talk? <laughs> that's not going to work, right? <laughs> if I call, oh, I love you, that's not going to work. <laughs> what can I do? Now, I'm, I am really alert. That is the anger making me tremendously alert. In that particular situation, I said, well, yes, let it rip. <laughs> you, so-and-so, uh, so, what do you think you're doing? Oh, he looks up like the voice of God. Boom, down, boom, 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 boom. It's the effect they wanted it to have. You see what I mean? He took off like a bat out of hell. I said, you better run your off. I catch you. <laughs> but seriously, I, and it was all, I, I don't even say this was fake. I mean, I was angry. I mean, the energy, all that was right there. But my intention was, truly speaking, I wanted to scare the, you know what, out of him so that maybe that would dissuade him from going down this path. That's all I could do in that one moment. That's all there was time to do. So that's a good measure to use when deciding whether or not to let it out, is what are, what are my intentions? Exactly right. Exactly right. Be very careful with this one. And I would wait. I would first do a practice of withdrawal and being with gang and stuff like that. Because, you know, it's very easy to say, and... And just for your own good, I have to tell you what a rotten son of a bitch you are. You know what I mean? We also have, not, not intention, but we also now need one other thing we have to bring in, and that is skillful means. See? So and by the time we start learning skillful means, then you can combine the two, you know. But the difference was, literally, the difference was I was not angry at him. I hoped that he went home and thought twice about doing that. So here's an example where you wouldn't want to get rid of anger. What would you do in that situation? What would I have done? Sat there smoking my cigarette? That's, you know, not very skillful. Watch him destroy your car. <laughs> I don't know why they pick my car. You people see my car. It's the, it's the Mossmobile out there, you know what I mean? This guy wanted to break in and somebody else stole it, you know. Have a, a street full of cars, you know, good, nice pickup trucks, late model cars. I don't know what that attraction is. I like this one. This, this town is not very smart, Brooks. I really come to that conclusion. I feel sorry for them, you know. I, probably unconsciously picked up on the vibes. For whatever reason. Maybe they're trying to do you a favor. <laughs> oh, it's all been a great teaching. It's been wonderful. 
the guy who stole my car went, this was really great because I walked out. Now, I'm going to tell a story here without a question. <clears throat> I can chop this off the tape later if it runs on too long. See? I walked out, uh, I looked in the morning, and I looked over right where I parked my car, and it wasn't there. I couldn't believe it. I said, did I, did I park it someplace else last night? Maybe... The, and I looked up and down the street, and it began to dawn on me a stolen. I really, I, look, I started studying the cars. I said, if I'm a thief, this is the last car on the whole street I would pick to steal. What is the matter with them, right? So then I thought, okay, so I call the police, and then you have to go down there to make a report. They don't come out anymore. I guess they shorten, you know, budget or whatever. I, this was a few years ago. So I go down there, and... Um, I said, what are the chances of getting it back? He says, not very good. They probably took it out of state or something. You know? So then I started considering, well, you know, we're a two-car family. It'd be interesting to try to get along with one car. I mean, you know, cut back, a little simplicity in life. The one day I need the car to go shopping, I could take Jennifer to work and stuff like that. It'd be a little inconvenient, but it might be interesting. I'd probably do more walking, which would be good for me, you know, all these things. About three days go by, I'm really getting into this new lifestyle. <laughs> the phone rings in the middle of the night. <laughs> When we got your car, they had, uh, some cops had spotted it, and they had um, come after it, and the guy had pulled over and run. They didn't catch the guy, but they had my car, right? I mean, that's like really, like, I don't know. And again, 3 o'clock in the morning, all these things happen at 3 o'clock in the morning. I have to get up and go down there to get my car, you know? And I get there, and I look inside. Oh, then the, the cops, they asked me, what did you have in the car, you know? And I said, basically nothing. I'm in a jack and a, and a tire and a spare tire and the trunk and stuff. So we open it up. The saddest thing in the world is this duffel bag with these dirty clothes hadn't been washed in months, you know. Inside the car, there's a brick of the cheapest craft cheese, half eaten, uh, some soda pop cans. And I think, how this guy lives, do you know what I mean? Like an animal. I mean, the, this food, I mean, I, you know, I'm not a purist by eating at any means, but this is, you know, he's living on junk food and, you know, and I really, my just heart went out to him, you know. And then why he didn't take it out of town? What was he doing driving around in the same neighborhood that the car was stolen in? I mean, he should find another uh, occupation. It's, he should have taken one of those aptitude tests because he ain't suited for this. You know? Anyway, the reason I tell a story, I'm really not bragging stuff. I'm just trying to show you there are different ways to respond to a situation that we're conditioned to respond to in habitual ways that causes suffering. To me, it was not suffering, it was an adventure. So the situation doesn't have to change, the same things happen. It's not like you go on a spiritual path and suddenly the angels come down and protect you. A lot of people think a spiritual path is going to do that for them. That, but that's not from a mystic's point of view what's going to happen. The very same situations that once caused you suffering are now going to be delightful. Curious, uh, interesting, joyful, tender. I mean, all the emotions, like in a movie, which you pay good money to go see, as I've often said. But this is free. Yeah, that's exactly right. I was about to say that. Thank you, Wesley. <laughs> and this is free. <laughs> okay. Let's bring the formal part of the morning to a close. Uh, somebody brought some St. Patty's Day cookies. And there's tea out there, and you're welcome to use the library. Until we see you again, peace to you all.